0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's the downside of fame for an actor to become so well-known for a character that fans forget their real name, or that they have a personality separate from the character. But some don't mind it as much as others. If I said Keiko, Chris, Soccer, and Reggie... You'd probably stare at me blankly, but if I said Free Willy, Beethoven, Wishbone, and Goose from Captain Marvel, you'd know exactly who I was talking about. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. We've been filming animals almost as long as we've been filming ourselves. The first movie to star an animal as the protagonist was Rover to the Rescue, all the way back in 1905. Rover to the Rescue was a British silent drama directed by Cecil Hepworth, the owner of its star, Blair, a male collie. The story is about a heroic dog named Rover who rescues the family's baby, played by Hepworth's own daughter, that was kidnapped from her nanny. Most of the footage is devoted to the dog's journey in finding the baby and then leading his master, played by Hepworth, to the baby. Hepworth's wife wrote the scenario and also acted as the mother in the film. The film became so popular that Hepworth had to reshoot it twice. So many prints were being made that the negatives would wear out. And it was after this film that the previously uncommon name Rover became the most recognized name for dogs in the English-speaking world. The title of best-known movie dog is probably split between Rin Tin Tin and Lassie, with an honorable mention for Benji among my 80s babies out there. The first Rin Tin Tin was discovered during World War I in a bombed-out kennel in Lorraine, France, by U.S. Air Corporal Lee Duncan. Duncan found a mother German shepherd and a litter of 5 scrawny pups, only 2 of whom would ultimately survive. He named them Rin Tin Tin and Nanette, after little puppet toys that French children like to give the GIs for luck. When the war ended, Duncan made special arrangements to take his puppies back home to Los Angeles, though Nanette sadly became ill and died after the trip. In 1922, Duncan and Rintintin, or Rinty, as Duncan called him, attended an L.A. dog show, with Rinty performing for the crowd by jumping over 13 feet or 4 meters. Following the show, producer Daryl Zanuck asked Duncan if he could try one of his new moving pictures on the dog and paid him $350 to film Rinty in action. Contacting every other studio in Hollywood with a Rintintin-based script, Where the North Begins, Duncan came across a Warner Brothers crew shooting a low-budget movie in which they were having difficulty with an exterior shot involving a wolf. Duncan quickly approached the director and told him that Rinty could do the scene in one take. True to his word, Duncan's Wonder Dog did it in one try, and both were hired for the entire shoot of Man from Hell's River. German Shepherds were not a well-known breed in the U.S. at the time, so my guess is that Rinty could have passed for a wolf for people who had never seen either one before. The film was a hit, and Rin Tin Tin an immediate sensation, making 26 pictures for Warner Bros., while also starring in his own radio show, The Wonder Dog. Rin Tin Tin's expressive face was the equal of any human actor in the silent era. At the peak of his popularity, Warner Brothers maintained 18 trained stand-ins, to ensure that no undue stress was put on their star, while providing Rinty with a private chef who prepared daily lunches of tenderloin, which he ate while listening to live classical music to aid his digestion. Rinty also made more money than many of his human co-stars. In the 1924 film Lighthouse by the Sea, Rinty earned about $1,000 a week, while the leading man, William Collier Jr., made $150 a week. The same thing would happen in 1939 during the filming of The Wizard of Oz, where Toto was paid twice as much as any of the little people playing munchkins. Rin Tin Tin died in 1932 at the age of 14, and was returned to France to be buried in the Cémeterie des Chênes et autres animaux domestiques, the cemetery of dogs and other domestic animals. Today, Rin Tin's continuous bloodline carries on at a Texas kennel, where one litter of puppies are born each year. When asked if she ever felt a sibling rivalry with Rin Tin Tin, Duncan's daughter Carolyn told author Susan Orlean, There was never any rivalry. The dogs came first. Bonus fact, there's a persistent urban legend that Rin Tin Tin had actually gotten the most votes for lead actor for the first Academy Awards, but the Academy put the kibosh on it in hopes of being taken seriously. What had actually happened was that screenwriter Frank Woods had been pushing for an award given to entertainers by entertainers, to no avail. He tried to solicit the help of the previously mentioned Warner Brothers exec Daryl Zanuck, who thought the idea was ludicrous. Zanuck wrote Woods a jeering letter in which he previewed his own ballot if the industry ever tried to give itself awards. All of his votes were for Warner Brothers films, including The Best Actor, in which he cast his vote for Rin Tin Tin. He must have told somebody who told somebody else, and that's how the story got started. The 1928 Oscar ballots were stored in an archive, and they contain not one vote for Rin Tin Tin. In the 1930s and 40s, Rudd Weatherwax ran a kennel that not only supplied movie dogs but taught regular dog obedience. In his care was a collie named Pal, who had several bad habits like constantly barking and chasing motorcycles. After a while, Pal's owner decided he didn't want the dog back, so he gave Pal to Weatherwax in remission of his bill. Weatherwax would eventually get Pal to stop barking so much, but never did break him of chasing motorcycles. Pal's ancestry could actually be traced all the way back to England's first great collie, a dog called Old Cocky. Pal was one of 1,500 dogs who auditioned for the lead role of Lassie in the movie Lassie Come Home. Pal was originally rejected because he was male, and because Lassie was described in the original book as a tricolor collie with a black mask, while Pal had lots of white markings, including the white blaze down his nose. A female prize-winning collie was selected instead, and Pal was kept on as a stunt dog. While filming a scene in which Lassie had to swim a flooded river, haul himself out, lay down without shaking out their coat, attempt to crawl on their side, and finally lay motionless and exhausted, the female dog refused to even get into the water. But Pal hit all the marks, and in just one take. The rest, as they say, is history. You might have picked up on the fact that Lassie the character was a girl and Pal was a boy. In fact, all nine dogs who have played Lassie have been male, even when she supposedly had puppies and was shown nursing them. Weatherwax continued to use male collies because, while both sexes shed or blow out their coats in the summertime, when most movies and TV shows traditionally film, the males have a thicker coat, so the dog won't look scrawny during filming because it's shedding. Fans also thought of Lassie as a big, heroic dog, and males are about 15 pounds heavier than females. Female collies were not ignored completely. Some of Lassie's stunt doubles had been female. Pal didn't always play Lassie in his movies. In The Courage of Lassie, he played a dog called Bill. In The Painted Hills, he played Shep. And in The Strangest One, in Son of Lassie, he played Lassie's son Laddie, while Lassie was played by another dog. When Pal died of old age in 1958, Weatherwax was distraught. He would often visit the grave he had dug for Pal in a special spot on his ranch, and could never bring himself to watch another Lassie movie again. While top dogs usually get top billing, it's actually horses who have the most prolific and often the most difficult time in Tinseltown. Early Hollywood was an anarchic place, with upstart production companies launching whatever grandiose project had sprung to mind. Beginning in the 1920s, as the motion picture industry first boomed, you could do almost anything to an animal, or to a human for that matter. As many as 100 horses died in the making of the original 1926 Ben-Hur. With the jump in profits that came with the advent of talkies in 1927, along came the studio system, which concentrated filmmaking into a few corporate dictatorships to churn out movies as quickly as possible. Dramas, comedies, adventures, musicals, biographies, all would use animals, but the genre that used the most was the Western. Westerns were a staple in the 20s and 30s, and boomed in the 40s. In the early days, when the motor car was still new, people were more familiar with handling horses and more mindful of the inherent dangers, like runaway wagon teams or a horse and rider falling. But directors loved to show falls. They would use pitfalls and trip wires to make the horses fall, though there were also stunt horses who could fall on command. Trained horses would be made to jump through windows or through flames. They leapt over wagons and rampaged through saloons. Safety was rarely much of a concern compared to getting the shot. Sometimes individual horses were famous enough in their own right, or loved enough by a famous human actor, to fare better. Western star William S. Hart had a famous pinto named Fritz who could fall on command, lie down to act as a shield in a gunfight, and even play scenes opposite a monkey. In the 1924 movie, Singer Jim McGee, there was a scene in which Hart was supposed to ride Fritz off a cliff into a gorge. Hart didn't want to risk Fritz or a stunt horse, so a fake Fritz was built. Hart was filmed galloping Fritz to the edge of the cliff, at which point, on cue, Fritz fell to one side. The cameras cut, and the fake Fritz, held up with wire, was brought in and Hart climbed aboard. When the wires were cut, the two toppled into the gorge. Hart was badly shaken by the fall, but once edited, the footage of falling man and horse was highly realistic for its day. So much so that the motion picture producer and distributor organization, a.k.a. the Hayes Office, called Hart in to explain why he had been so cruel to Fritz. More about the Hayes Office later. Thanks to all of my brainiacs who helped support the show this week by retweeting or sharing social media posts, including Deborah, Eric, Richard, Charles with the Hammer, Seneca the Wiser, Nelson, and fellow podcasters, Stories of Your and Yours, and Lie Hard with a Vengeance, both of which I recommend. Lie Hard also left us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is a top-notch podcast. Despite dispelling your romantic concepts, Moxie's podcast is exceptionally well-produced, informative, and well worth your subscription. That makes three reviews in three weeks. Do you think we can keep the streak going? If you've always meant to leave a review but never got around to it, now would be a great time. If we can build some momentum, I wonder if we can get to 50 reviews by the end of the year. We're sitting at 30 now. 31 if you include the person who left one star but didn't write a comment, just so I can wonder forever what their principal complaint was. Now, Fritz was the exception rather than the rule. In 1939, two horses were killed in the filming of Northwest Mounted Police, and two more died in the movie Jesse James. The horses in Jesse James were wearing blinkers, a kind of blinder that fits directly over the eye with eyes painted on them so the camera wouldn't notice. The horses were unable to see and had no idea they were being driven off a 75-foot cliff over whitewater until it was too late. The footage was impressive, the stuntman got his paycheck, and the horses died. Their deaths were not in vain though. This was the single biggest turning point in the history of Hollywood's treatment of animals. Word of the deaths got around. And in reaction to public outcry, the Hayes office worked with the American Humane Association to write guidelines for animal performances. The American Humane, who are the people who monitor the conditions for animals while filming and approve the no animals were harmed in the making of this film message in the credits, is not the same as the Humane Society, though they're like-minded in many ways. American Humane began in October of 1877 with the amalgamation of 27 organizations from across the U.S., whose first meeting was to discuss the mistreatment of farm animals during transport across the country. The following year, they also began efforts to protect abused children. Child cruelty laws had been around since colonial times, but where they did exist, were broadly written and rarely enforced. Across the board, stricter laws protecting animals were put in place before strict laws to protect children. American Humane exposed unsanitary and inhumane conditions in slaughterhouses, promoted the passage of the first Cruelty to Children Act, proposed legislation to protect child stage performers, and called for federal legislation to ban frequent, large, and deep branding of livestock. They opposed corporal punishment in schools and fought against the practice of vivisection, or live dissection, which was used in schools and by scientists. And that was just in their first 20 years. Starting in 1940, after the filming of Jesse James, the American Humane was granted access to movie sets by the Screen Actors Guild, though the Guild had no jurisdiction over non-American or non-union productions. Apparent animal cruelty was also banned by the Hayes office. You heard about the Hayes Code in Episode 40, Words You Can't Say on TV or Radio, which featured special guest Joe Christie of the upcoming podcast Rock History with Joe Christie. The Hayes Code demanded that marital bedrooms feature two twin beds, that Betty Boop be drawn in more modest costuming, and that no one make fun of the clergy in any way ever, amongst many other restrictive rules. Films had to be submitted to their office before release to get a certificate of approval, and changes were often demanded before the certificate would be issued. In 1968, the Hayes Code was dropped, so movie characters could be as satirical, wanton, profane, or queer as they wanted. But it also meant American Humane's access to some sets was diminished, and their jurisdiction to act was weakened. It was another era of anything-goes in New Hollywood. Younger filmmakers were creating realistic and daring movies with more subtlety and less dependence on formula contributing to a cinematic renaissance and a move toward realism and location shooting. All of that cinema verite was bad for the animals. Through the final days of the 60s and into the 70s, it was bleak, said Karen Rosa, vice president of the American Humane's film and TV unit. We were banned from film sets. There was a push for a gritty realism in those days of filmmaking, and they didn't like to be told they could or could not do something with animals. Because the American Humane wasn't on set, they could neither confirm nor refute that two mules were killed on the set of Patton in 1970 in a scene where General Patton shoots two mules who are blocking a bridge. In Apocalypse Now in 1979, a real live water buffalo was slaughtered with a machete, their defense being it was going to be slaughtered with a machete regardless. Before the movie was released in the UK, The Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals protested that it violated that country's Cinematograph Animals Act. The list of cruelty they could prove in the 1970s included animals killed for entertainment, horses wire-tripped, and live snake sliced into pieces. I did not Google that last one, and by listening to this podcast, you indemnify me from any psychological harm if you choose to. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA member FDIC. It took another crisis to push things back in the right direction. That being 1980s Heaven's Gate, a spectacular flop so expensive that it put United Artists Studios out of business. Chickens died in staged cockfights. One horse was killed in an explosion. Others were injured or killed in a battle scene. It was claimed that cattle were slaughtered and gutted so their innards could double for the innards of human characters. The American Humane, which hadn't been allowed on the set, led picket lines and a boycott of the film, which was taken up by humane groups across the country. Unlike Apocalypse Now, there were no good reviews to distract people, and public anger once again led to sweeping change. American Humane monitors came back on set through a contract with the Screen Actors Guild and the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers. The the no-animals-were-harmed-in-the-making-of-this-film disclaimer came into being at the same time. It was first granted to a movie called The Doberman Gang, in which a man trains six dogs to rob a bank for him. In 1988, the American Humane published a set of guidelines for film and TV production. Since then, they say that the incidence of accident, illness, and death of animals on set have declined sharply, although there are still occasional violators, especially when filming takes place overseas. American Humane currently monitors 70% of known animal action in film and television, starting in pre-production by reviewing the script. They don't just safeguard cuddly mammals, either. American Humane even ensures decent treatment for insects and fish. Bonus fact, in the credits for The Silence of the Lambs is Ray Mendez, Moth Wrangler, and Stylist. There were not enough Death's Head hawk moths to be found, and no time in which to breed them, so Mendez took another species of moth and essentially dressed it in a little costume. He painted a Death's Head onto a fake press-on nail, and used a special kind of glue to stick it to the moth's back in a way that wouldn't hurt it. That's the kind of interesting extra content you can get and share in our Facebook group at facebookcom groups, plural, slash brainiac break room. For something really special, head over to patreon.com your brain on facts for the pilot of Spot the Lie, where myself and three other podcast hosts try to figure out whose tantalizing tidbit of obscure knowledge is actually complete crap. It is a Patreon exclusive, but open to all levels, even the $2 a month level, which is less than seven cents a day, to help support the show. American Humane is not without its controversies, though. In the late 1980s, American Humane was accused by Bob Barker and United Activists for Animals' Rights of condoning animal cruelty on the set of Project X, the Matthew Broderick movie about chimps being taught to fly planes. Barker and company claimed that a cattle prod and a gun were being used on set, and that a chimp was rumored to have been beaten. American Humane responded by launching a $10 million libel, slander, and invasion of privacy suit against Barker, and put out ads that stated that the allegations were based on insufficient and misleading information. The suit was eventually settled by Barker's insurance company in American Humane's favor for $300,000. In 2001, the LA Times claimed the American Humane's film unit "...has been slow to criticize cases of animal mistreatment, yet quick to defend the big-budget studios it is supposed to police." In late 2013, The Hollywood Reporter ran a story that implicated American Humane in turning a blind eye to and under-reporting incidents of animal abuse on television and movie sets. One conspicuous example was the 27 animals who died during the filming of The Hobbit, and Unexpected Journey, even though the movie did receive the no-animals-were-harmed message. The tiger from The Life of Pi nearly drowned, and 14 horses were injured during the filming of Prince Caspian, but they all got the seal, too. Jumping back in time, and to cleanse the palate with a slightly more pleasant tone, in 1939, after the Jesse James debacle, American Humane created the Patsy Award to honor animal performers. It originally stood for Picture Animal Top Star of the Year before being changed to Performing Animal Television Star of the Year. The very first recipient of a Patsy was Francis the Talking Mule in 1951 in a ceremony hosted by Ronald Reagan. The award later covered both film and television and was separated into four categories, canine, equine, wild, and special, which included livestock, like Arnold from Green Acres, who won twice. Arnold's trainer, Frank Inn was the proud owner of over 40 Patsy Awards. Lassie got so many Patsy Awards that they put her in the Hall of Fame to take her out of the running each year. By the 1970s, the awards were being presented on television, with animal recipients selected by the general public who voted in ballots that appeared in Associated Press newspapers. The awards ended, though, in 1986 due to a lack of funding. That same year, the Genesis Awards were created by the Humane Society of the United States, to honor individuals in the major news and entertainment media for producing outstanding works that raise awareness of animal issues, in 2011, the American Humane announced the creation of the Oscars, described as an unofficial animal-centric spin on the Oscars. They have categories like Best Young Animal Performer, Best Aquatic Performance, and Best Supporting Equine. Remember that second dark period for animal actors. It turns out the 1970s could be even more dangerous for people. Assuming you are dumb enough to invite dozens of lions into your house with no professional training and just kinda trust your luck. That was apparently the plan for filmmaker Noel Marshall and his wife, actress Tippi Hedren, yes, the one from The Birds, in creating their movie, Roar. The concept came to them when they were in Africa while Hedren filmed the movie, Satan's Harvest. While out sightseeing, they found an abandoned house that had been taken over by a pride of lions. They decided to make a movie about lions that would be entertaining, but have a message of conservation, and they conscripted Marshall's three sons and Hedron's daughter, Melanie Griffith. They decided to raise some of the animals themselves. They acquired a number of big cats from zoos, pet shops, circuses, private owners, and animal control, especially for the making of the movie their very first being a three-month-old lion cub. They bought a ranch they named Shambhala, after neighbors began to complain, and did their best to make it look like Africa. No one would invest in the project, which got more and more expensive as the cats started breeding, so they had to finance it themselves. The movie would feature over 150 animals, most of them big cats, including lions, Tigers, even though they don't live in Africa, leopards, cheetahs, cougars, and jaguars. In ideal, or even correct, conditions, you would have two handlers per large animal. They definitely did not have 300 handlers working on this movie. They employed two total. Marshall's concept for the movie was to allow the cats to do pretty much whatever they wanted and film it, Keeping the script loose enough to work around them. That way, he would get the most natural and truest expression of their personalities and behavior. According to his son John, as director, Marshall would often refuse to call cut, even when the actors, mostly family members, were in danger. He never wanted to lose a take. He also couldn't show any weakness in front of the animals. The movie took 11 years to get from script concept to distribution. The script was started around the end of 1969. Actual filming began in '74, and it would take about four years to complete principal photography, a far cry from the six to nine months they originally estimated. The movie was finally edited and released in 1981. This was Hedren's first major movie with her daughter, Melanie Griffith. Griffith left the production for a while for fear of, "...coming out of this with half a face." The role then went to a friend of hers, who the lions were accustomed to, and whose face Griffith was apparently not as worried about. The understudy filmed a number of scenes, then Griffith changed her mind, and they had to reshoot. She should have gone with her first instinct. One of the lions did try to take her face off, requiring her to have reconstructive surgery. We could be here all day recounting the injuries from this shoot. Cinematographer Jan de Bont was nearly scalped, requiring over 200 stitches to put his head back together, and this was his first major Hollywood movie. Assistant director Doran Copper was attacked and mauled by a lion during production. His throat was bitten open, his jaw was bitten, and one of the lions attempted to rip his ear off. He was also injured in the head, chest, and thigh. Hedren suffered a fractured leg when she was thrown from the back of an elephant and multiple wounds from the cats. Marshall's son John required 56 stitches to repair his worst bite wound, and Marshall himself was wounded so many times that he was hospitalized with gangrene at one point. The only person who escaped filming completely unharmed was Kenyan-born actor Gyalo Matobo, who had sworn off getting cozy with the animals from day one. In 1978, a flood from a dam breaking killed many of the lions in the film, washed away the set, and destroyed nearly everything—the house, the trees, their personal possessions, editing equipment, and the completed footage. Sheriff's deputies had to shoot three lions who escaped during the commotion, including Robbie, a unique black-maned Rhodesian lion and king lion of the picture. This set production back years, and the damage done amounted to over four million dollars. Hedren sold her costume from the birds and all of her jewelry, and Marshall bankrupted his ad agency to get production started again. A year later, a brush fire hit the ranch. All of the animals were evacuated to safety, though Marshall was clawed by a cheetah while trying to protect it. When it was all over, Hedren said what they had done was incredibly stupid and should never be attempted again. They almost couldn't find a distributor, because everyone they spoke to wanted a hefty chunk of the profits, but the family badly needed to recoup their losses. In the end, they couldn't release the film in the U.S. anyway, due to multiple pending lawsuits from creditors. The film cost $17 million of their own money to make, and only brought in $2 million internationally. It was also the death knell for Hedren and Marshall's marriage, as they divorced the following year. The other crazy thing about Roar was the marketing. The same cut of the film would be advertised as a horror, a horror comedy, and a ferocious family comedy. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. There was a bright side to the whole Roar experience. Tippy Hedren kept the Shambala Ranch and established the Roar Foundation to care for big cats who were seized by law enforcement born in captivity or surrendered by private owners. This includes Michael Jackson's two Bengal tigers from the Neverland Ranch Zoo and the largest bull elephant ever recorded in captivity. While Shambhala welcomes all volunteers, only trained professionals are allowed to work directly with the animals. The title for today's show was Never Work With Children or Animals and you'll notice I didn't get around to the children part, so look for that chapter next week. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And remember, the pilot episode of Spot the Lie drops tomorrow on patreon.com slash yourbrainonfact.